0: Hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Habakkuk, Chapter two, verses two through, uh, excuse me, Chapter one, verses two through eleven. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And the Lord responds, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. And they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for our worship so far this morning in song and in liturgy and confession. Lord, we pray, God, that. As we uh, consider your words and oracle to the prophet Habakkuk, Lord, and his prayer to you, Lord God, that our hearts and our minds and our ears would be open to hear and to believe and to understand what you have inspired in your word. And we pray this, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we began uh, here with the prophet Habakkuk. And we we started by using really this illustration of a... um, of a road trip, right? And so what we talked about at least was, you know, there are obviously many essential parts to a road trip, right? You, you want to make sure that you check the car, right? You want to check the oil. You want to put gas in the tank, right? Because you're not going to get very far, right? I mean, even with gas prices the way they are, you're not going to get very far if your tank is empty. Right? You're, you also, you want to pack your bags, right? If you're going to go on a road trip, you don't need to wear the same clothes every day. I mean, maybe you want to, I don't know, but that's between you and God. But, you know, you, know, you want to do all that stuff, and so last week, we, we prepped the vehicle of this road trip by kicking the tires, right? And what we did is we established the context of Habakkuk. We just looked at verse 1, and we considered what was going on in Habakkuk's life, what was going on historically and culturally, all this stuff, which hopefully will help give us – at least help us as we begin to get on the road, so to speak. I'm going to beat this road trip illustration of death, right? But – an essential part of every road trip is the destination. And we talked about that last week. Even if you're just hopping in the car and driving around for a while, you've got a destination somewhere. Whether that is to eventually end up back home or go out to eat or go to a store or something, you've got a destination. And so there's always a destination involved. And the same is true with this study or this series through Habakkuk. So as we established the context last week, we also established really the purpose of this series, of this study, which was to ask and to answer the question, is it wrong for us to question God? Or is it wrong for us, as Habakkuk does, to complain to God? Which we answered last week, I think, with a very firm no. As long as our destination remains the same, which is humility and repentance and resting in God's sovereignty. And so even as we establish this truth, we were reminded last week, particularly from Job, That when we do bring our concerns and our complaints and our questions to God, we should not be surprised how he answers or even be offended by his answers, especially when his answers aren't what we were expecting. And this is exactly what happens to Habakkuk. And as we look more closely at his complaints, both today and next week, we see that very quickly he is frustrated. He's frustrated at his own people. He's frustrated at their sin. He's frustrated that they have abandoned God and abandoned the law. He's, and so what he does is he turns, he sees all of this happening, and he turns to God and he complains to the Lord who answers him in a way that he was not expecting but also in a way that Habakkuk could not comprehend and God, because God answers that he will judge Judah's sin through exile At the hands of the wicked Babylonians. And each of those qualities are very important for understanding his complaint today and God's response. And so, over the course of the next two weeks, we'll see how Habakkuk complains and how God responds to these complaints. And this first complaint, as we'll see today as we make our way through it, it deals really with God's silence in the face of this wickedness that Habakkuk is witnessing among his own people. The second complaint, as we'll look at next week, is born out of God's response that we'll see today. Specifically, the fact that God has chosen to use an even more wicked and sinful nation to judge the wickedness of God's chosen people. So let's consider this complaint, see what, why he's complaining, what's happening, and then we'll consider how God responds. So that hopefully when we presume to be bold enough to gripe to God we will end up at the same destination of humility and repentance and resting in his sovereignty. So first we see Habakkuk's complaint in these first three verses, in verses 2 through 4. Listen again. Here's what he says. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong?" Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and so justice goes forth perverted. That's a pretty bold complaint to God, right? But one commentator here, he rightly notes, he says, Human nature tends to always be filled with complaints. But our problem is, is that we typically complain in the wrong direction. He says... We tend to complain about God rather than to God. We also tend to complain about we also tend to talk about God rather than to God. And so logically then, if we can bring our complaints and our questions and our concerns to God, then obviously we need to actually bring them to God, right? Not and we can gripe to one another, we can pray for one another, but we need to actually complain and talk to God. That's the whole point, right? So You probably picked up on this in our initial read-through and then just reading it through again. Plus, I've told you a few times now right? how this text is immediately relatable to our own circumstances in life. Because, again, Habakkuk is very frustrated. right? He's frustrated with his people. He's frustrated at their spiritual condition but also at their physical condition within their historical context. Because he's frustrated at their sin and their rejection of God. We can relate to that very quickly looking around our own culture. But he's also frustrated that they have been continually oppressed by Assyria. Assyria has ruled Judah now for about 100 years. Their power is waning, and as we read in this text, Babylon is on its way, or the Chaldeans. There's, they're the same people, right? So when I read Chaldeans, I mean Babylonians, Babylonians, Chaldeans, same people, right? But he's complaining about that. And, but all around him, he also sees, as we read here in his complaint, he sees a division among his people. He sees the rich oppressing the poor. And adding to that frustration, it appears as though God has just completely abandoned them. Or at the very least, God has turned a blind eye to their suffering and to their sin. And so notice here in these verses, Habakkuk's complaint is really based upon what he knows about Yahweh because of how Yahweh has revealed himself. In Exodus chapter 34, Yahweh tells Moses to proclaim to the people that, that he is holy and righteous, that he is compassionate and gracious that he is slow to anger and abounds in steadfast love, that he forgives wickedness, he forgives rebellion, but he also does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And so if this is how God had revealed himself to be, you can understand at this point in Habakkuk's prayer why he's so frustrated at the sin, at at the lack of judgment from God on his own people, because how could a holy and pure and righteous God seemingly ignore or turn a blind eye to their sin and to their wickedness. How could he allow them to go unpunished? So we can feel that frustration. So let's pick out a few details in this complaint before we look at God's response. Hopefully this will help us appreciate his frustration even more. He begins here in verse two. He says, O oh Lord, how long? This is the same thing that we read about last week. In Psalm 13 from David, this is what we just heard uh, Scott read and what we sang about uh, earlier here in Psalm 80, just above there in your bulletin. This is also like the prayer of the saints in Revelation 6 that we looked at in, over the course of Eastertide. How long? We all complain this a lot. Lord, how long? And you can immediately feel Habakkuk's frustration. Because it seems, at least at this point, he has been praying for a very long time. And he's also been waiting for a very long time for God to answer. And God is not answering. But we can also feel what has been described as the tension of unanswered prayer. Because we all want to know the answer to that question. How long, Lord, how long are you going to allow this to continue? So consider our own prayers, right? I mean, we, we pray all the time. How long have we been praying about a particular person or a particular circumstance in life? And it just seems as though God has met us with silence or how long have we been praying for healing right whether that be for somebody that's sick or even for our own culture or how long have we been praying for a movement of God's spirit right how long have we been praying for a revival in the land or a great awakening and God just seems to have met us with silence or how long or how many of us have been frustrated with what feels like stunted spiritual growth or stunted experiences of God or even a stunted movement, whether that be a personal movement of God in our lives or a corporate movement here in our body at Christ Community. Because patience, patience is not a natural virtue that we're born with, especially in our fallen human condition. Right? Patience, we learn from the Apostle Paul, is a fruit of the Spirit that is worked out in us by God's Spirit throughout our lives, in our sanctification or in what Eugene Peterson called our long obedience in the same direction, which is a great name. He actually has a book titled by that, which is great. But anyway, but you can feel this tension. This tension of Habakkuk really sets the tone for both of his complaints today and next week. And his first complaint is simply that the people, they've abandoned the law and the order of God. And he just simply wants to know how long, how long is he going to have to continue to pray for relief? And how long is God going to continue to respond with silence? But then... In this very first line, because I didn't read the whole thing again, we notice something else. He says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? This is not just a simple prayer. He's crying out to God. In the Hebrew, this word suggests something like shouting or even screaming out with intensity. One commentator even said, went so far as to state that Habakkuk is screaming From hopelessness and complete despair. Oh, Lord, how long do I have to yell at you for help? And you will not hear. So you can hear, you can feel that frustration in this prayer, right? But then you move on in the rest of this verse, and you see why he is so frustrated. Because violence had filled the promised land. Violence had filled the people. Not just from the outside source of Assyria through their hundred years of oppression and demanding tribute, but more so there was intense violence between the nation of Judah, between neighbor, between covenant people. Matthew Henry writes here, he says, Judah was as full of violence as the world was before the flood. That's violent. And he goes on, he says, Because no one had any misgivings of doing wrong to his neighbor. So this is a moment where we can reflect. We can reflect on those similarities between our situation and Habakkuk's because both of our societies, both of our cultures are in the midst of extreme decline, both at home and abroad. And in Habakkuk's case here, the wicked of Judah were constantly oppressing the righteous remnant of Judah. They were consistently violating the law of God by doing something that they were commanded not to do, which was to intentionally and maliciously injure One another, injure the covenant people of God, not just their fellow man, but their fellow brother and sister among the covenant community. And so in verse 3, we move on and we see that this tension and frustration build as Habakkuk continues to complain. He shouts, This, God, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at all of this wrong? Because destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. And so he asks here, he asks a very valid question that we all, when we are frustrated, when we are complaining, when it feels like God has met us, met us with silence, he asks a, a question that we all want an answer to. Why do you make me see all of this bad stuff? God, why have you allowed me to live in this particular time? Right. Why not 50 years ago? Right? Why not a couple hundred years ago? Right? Why this time period? Or as we're all prone to complain from time to time, God, why me? Right. Lord, why me? Woe is me. And for Habakkuk, his frustration is that God had not only allowed him to witness this violence and this destruction and strife and contention, but that God's apparent silence at it, apparent idleness, as he prays here, had just allowed the wicked of Judah to dominate the righteous remnant of Judah. And so he complains why are you idly looking at this wickedness? Why are you idly sitting back while this is happening? God, how can you look on all of this and just simply do nothing? And it's important to pause here and remind ourselves. We talked about this last week, but let's do a reminder before we continue. Habakkuk is not mad at God. He's not angry at God. He's frustrated. But he's frustrated at his own people. And he's just trying to make sense of what is happening around him and why God seems to have allowed it. We all do this in our complaints, we all do this in our lives. Why, God, why have you allowed this to happen? And so he's trying to make sense of why God had remained silent and idle while this wickedness is running rampant in his culture. Both Theodore of Mopsuestia, which I said right that time, and John Calvin, they both note here – so this gives us a good picture throughout church history. They both note that this is – Habakkuk is showing righteous indignation at sin and injustice. Theodore writes that Habakkuk, he's not criticizing God. He's not mad at God. Rather, he is just expressing his indignation at those who are responsible for the injustice against their neighbor. And he is just simply at a loss at how they are not quickly called into account. He knows the history of his people. He knows what God has done in the past. Why is he not doing something now? Calvin writes this. He says, This passage teaches us to burn with holy indignation whenever we see wickedness reigning without restraint among mankind. And so he concludes here in verse 4, he concludes this initial complaint by shouting to God. He said, here is what has happened because you've been idle, Lord. In verses 2 and 3, he says, here is what happens because of verses 2 and 3. Because you have been idle, because I have been crying to you violence and you have not saved, because destruction and violence are in the land. Because of all of these things, your law, God, has become paralyzed. The law no longer holds any impact on the hearts of God's people. Instead, they are living according to their own ways, and they are worshiping according to their own wicked desires. To use a modern term, they were living their own truth, not God's truth. But also, he says here in verse 4, because of this violence, of this contention, this strife, this idleness of God, Lord, your justice has become perverted. Justice had become meaningless because their sin and their wickedness had remained unchecked. There was a righteous remnant in Judah that did exist, but they had become prey for the wicked because they would not break the law of God. So any justice rendered against them was not justice justice at all. It was perverted. So you understand his frustration. You understand his his irritation, his concern, his complaints. And so we come here then to the rest of this entire passage, verses 5 through 11, and we see that God, he, he responds. He is no longer silent. He now responds. But he responds to Habakkuk's complaint, interestingly. He responds kind of directly, but indirectly. Because God, his response isn't really an answer to Habakkuk's questions. What he does, though, is he answers Habakkuk's specific complaints against Judah by taking those complaints and equating them with the Babylonians who were wicked. So you begin here in verse 5, and we see God instructs Habakkuk. He says, you need to look among the nations and see. So again, that's not an immediate response, right? God, why are you doing this? And God says, look at the nations. That tells us two very, really important factors as we look at God's response. First, God had not ignored their sin. Look among the nations and see. God hadn't ignored their sin. Instead, telling Habakkuk to look at the nations, he's telling him, my work of judgment has already begun. Because much how like somebody could look at polling data and an electoral map and kind of guess right where an election is gonna go. At least they could have a few years ago, maybe not now, but a few years ago you could have looked at all of this data and been like, okay, I know who's gonna win this election. In a similar way, commanding Habakkuk to look at the nations means that somebody who is rightly attuned to God, his word, and his will, they can like a prophet would be, they can look out among the nations and they can see the signs. Of God's coming judgment. They can see the signs of God moving among the nations. In Habakkuk's case, look out among the nations and see the sign of the coming Chaldeans. But the the second part of that builds upon this first one, which is that God could have easily answered Habakkuk here by telling him to look to me. So God, why are you idly looking at violence? Why have you not answered this wickedness? Rest in me, look at me, and continue to preach repentance. But God doesn't do that. Instead, God tells Habakkuk, who will then tell his hearers when he goes and proclaims this oracle, he says, look out at the nations and see. Meaning, something very terrifying. God had turned them over. And he had turned them over for judgment. Calvin writes here, he says, that Judah was unworthy at this point to be taught in the school of God. And God could have told Habakkuk, look to me. But Habakkuk had spent so long in his labor in vain and without profit in teaching them that God sets over them the Chaldeans as their teachers. And so God instructs Habakkuk. He says, look among the nations and see and wonder at it and be astounded by it. Which tells us God fully understands that Habakkuk and his hearers are going to be surprised and not understand the answer to this complaint. Because who in Judah and frankly who in the church would ever expect the Lord to use a wicked instrument as a means of his righteous judgment? Habakkuk wouldn't expect that. We'll see that next week in the rest of chapter 1. The people of Judah definitely would not have expected that. For us it's it's incomprehensible that God would use a wicked instrument as righteous judgment. It's incomprehensible, but frankly so was the cross which was a very wicked instrument for God's righteous judgment. But this reminds us, though, to settle again on God's sovereignty. God is not bound by Judas or by Habakkuk's or even by our own sense of fairness or righteousness, regardless of how much we may have convinced ourselves otherwise. God responds out of and according to his own sovereign will, because he is Lord of creation and Lord of history. And he works in both to accomplish his purposes for his glory. Our position is to arrive at the destination of humility and repentance and resting in his sovereign will over his creation. And so let's look at the rest of this response and consider really that context of the Chaldeans and the context of God's sovereign will. As it relates to this wicked character of the Babylonians as a means of God's righteous judgment. Because it's out of this response to Habakkuk's complaint that we really can begin to appreciate Habakkuk's astonishment and his disbelief at how God responds. So dropping all the way down, we're going to bounce around this last section. Dropping all the way down at the very, very end of your bulletins there. We read that the first factor of their wicked character is that the Chaldeans intentionally reject the worship of Yahweh as God. Now, that's not all that surprising, right? If we're being honest, throughout all of history, even today, that's not a huge like, shock value, right? Most everybody rejects Yahweh as God. But it does shed for us a, a very bright light on the spiritual warfare that is happening between these two nations, of this conflict going on in the heavenlies. Because it reminds us of the spiritual condition of Babylon versus the spiritual condition of Judah. God proclaims of Babylon at the very end of our bulletin there. He says, they are guilty men whose own might, whose own strength is their God. Matthew Henry writes here, he says, Babylon was hardened in their idolatry. And they blasphemously argued that because they had captured Judah, that their gods were too strong for the God of Judah. Because in ancient times, right, when, you're, when you won in battle, your god defeated the other god, right? We kind of do the same thing but not on the same spiritual level when we you know, watch sports, right? This is why we have mascots, right? Your mascot beat the other mascot. It's really kind of how it, you know, on, on a weird plane, that's how it kind of works. But in this case, Babylon had convinced themselves they are powerful. They are mighty because they continue to win in battle. Their gods can beat all other gods. And so while Judah had been called to be the faithful covenant people of Yahweh, they had broken his covenant. They had turned their faith to other gods and to other heinous forms of worship. But Yahweh, at the end of the day, he was still their God. But for the Babylonians, God tells us here, he says their God is their own strength. It's their own might. For the wicked and the proud, this is very common. It's common to take glory that appropriately belongs to the Lord And to apply it to ourselves or to apply it to a God of our own making, a wicked character rejects Yahweh. But then there's a second factor that he brings up here, and it's their violence. So Habakkuk, he had been shouting to God about the violence between his own people. But instead of answering that particular complaint, what God does is he responds that he is going to be sending a nation... That was even more violent as a form of his righteous judgment. So here's, again, Habakkuk complains. He says, oh, Lord, how long shall I cry and you not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? And so God responds with this. He says, they are all coming for violence. All their faces are forward. They gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and they take it. And then they sweep by like the wind and they go on. God tells us here, he says, Babylon's purpose is very clear. They are bent on violence, and the result is that they are going to sweep through your region with their faces set to overtake you and to, and to capture you and even to destroy everything you love and own. And then they're going to take you away as slaves. But in verse 10 here, God clues us in really interestingly on the violent nature of the Chaldeans. He says this, he says, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. And they laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. He tells us the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they, they have no fear of anything. They have no fear of anyone, of anything. They, because, they're, again, their they're might, their God is their power, their God is their strength. So they mock at everything. They mock at foreign kings, they mock at princes and rulers, they mock even at their strongholds, because what they're going to do is just take rocks and dirt, and they're going to pile them up against the walls, and they're going to climb over the walls and kill everybody. They have no fear. There are few things more terrifying than an enemy who is not terrified of you or terrified of death. And this is exactly the kind of conquering force that God has said, I'm going to use them as my form of judgment against your wickedness. But the purpose of it all, as are all of God's purposes, was to drive the people of Judah to the right destination of humility and repentance. So he says, they're going to come. They're going to destroy everything you own, but they're going to take you away as slaves. Calvin writes here, he says, God intended to cut off from them every form of hope so that they might humble themselves before God. That was the purpose of their slavery. And then in verses 6 and 8, what God does is he he gives another means of their wicked character. He says they're destructive. They're not only violent, but they're also destructive. Habakkuk, he had complained. He He said, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so God responds here. He says, I'm going to send an even more destructive force. He says, not only are they going to be terrifyingly violent, but their soldiers and their horses are going to seem larger than life. Because he says in verse 6, they are bitter and hasty. They're going to march through the whole earth, and they are going to take your home. They're going to take that place that is safe for you and a place of refuge for you. But even more so in verse 8, They're going to appear as if from nowhere. They are swifter than leopards, and they fly like an eagle. But they are also as savage as wild animals. They are more fierce than the evening wolves. And the understanding here in the culture and in the Hebrew is that these are starving dogs that come out at night, right? I mean, if you've ever been anywhere where there's just a wild pack of dogs, this is what he's talking about. They are a wild pack of dogs that sleep in the day, but at evening they come out to devour they are swift to devour, he calls them. They are, a, they are wicked because their character is destructive. And then finally in verse 7, God tells Habakkuk, he responds to Habakkuk shouting about the injustice at the work in Judah. And God responds that this violent and this destructive people are going to carry with them their own wicked form of justice. So Habakkuk complains in verse 4. He says, The law, God, is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. Justice goes forth perverted. And God responds, he says, the Chaldeans, they will be dreaded and fearsome because their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. To put it another way, they were a law unto themselves. And this might be one of the hardest truths for us to really grapple with. Because as we'll see in Habakkuk's second complaint next week, it was completely incomprehensible to him That God would use such a wicked and sinful people to bring judgment on God's elect, on God's chosen people. Because the Babylonian standard for justice was not grounded in the law of God as Judah's was. Rather, their standard for justice was grounded in their own violent and destructive conquests. Because remember, their God is their power, their God is their might. But despite their evil, we see that God can and does consistently use wicked people to accomplish his righteous purposes. He did it with Pharaoh. He did it with Balaam. He even did it with Judas. But this does not make them unaccountable. And we'll see this in a few weeks in the larger part of chapter 2 where God will see he still holds those who are evil and unrighteous. He holds them accountable for their sinful actions even as he uses them as a means of his judgment. And so really, this is where I personally began to struggle with this because you're, you're, you're asking these questions. Can we question God? Sure, we can question God. Can we complain to God? Absolutely. And then you come to something like this in Habakkuk, and, and you have to ask, all right, well, what do I do with this? <laughs> how, do, how, do we, how do we live with this? I think there's three ways, and then we'll come to the table. See, I'm being a good pastor here, right? I'm giving you a three-point moment, right? But, but first is... With Habakkuk, this first complaint from Habakkuk, it really comes down – his complaint comes down to the very same questions that we ask in our own time, which are things like, does, does God really have anything to say when society appears to be disintegrating? Or is there really a message from God in such a wicked age? I mean, Judah was very wicked. Again, Matthew Henry said it was as wicked as the world was before the flood. That's, that's, that's pretty wicked. Or another question is, where is God – And why isn't he doing something about it? So our encouragement, the first thing here, our encouragement from Habakkuk's complaint and God's response is that God does indeed know what is going on, and he is very aware of it. And he's not oblivious to the suffering of his people or the wickedness that is running rampant in every age. But only in his time and in his ways will he bring judgment to the wicked and relief for the righteous. Habakkuk had to learn this very hard lesson, and so do we. The second point of this great little three-point application is that we really should be encouraged that Habakkuk can be this bold with God and that he takes his complaints and to God, but also that he, he kind of demands an answer from God. Now, this doesn't mean that God is required to respond. He's not, because he's God and we're not, right? That if you want a point for everything for the rest of your life, God is God and we are not God, right? There you go. But But rather, what this does tell us is that we can also be bold, and we should be bold, and open and honest with both our prayers and our complaints and our concerns. Because as, as we biblically determined last week, God, God's not offended by our humanity. He's not offended by our circumstances in life. He's offended by our sin. And he desires our holiness, and he desires our whole selves to be his own precious possession. So even if God does not answer in the way in which we expect him to, which is Habakkuk's experience, we can with extreme confidence bring our complaints to him and our concerns to him while also understanding that we should arrive at the destination of being humble before him and repenting and resting in his sovereignty. But then finally and primarily – and I want to stress primarily here – as the church – we also understand that through the incarnation and the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, things are very different for us than they were for Habakkuk. Paul would use this exact same passage, especially chapter 1, verse 5, on his first missionary journey as he was preaching to the Jews in Asia Minor. He said this in verse, uh, Acts chapter 13. He said, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. But beware, lest what is said in the prophet should be said about you. Look and be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if one told it to you. So in the person of Christ, we have been called to come and see, but we have also been called to look and to wonder and to be astounded at the mystery of the Incarnation. And we are completely unable to believe it without the work of God who has called us out of the darkness of our sin and into the light of Christ. Cyril of Alexandria states that Christ remained the Lord of all things even when he came in the form of a slave. So this is why the mystery of Christ is so truly wonderful because it is through Christ that we can complain to God. But it's also through Christ that his church has been ordained to proclaim a very similar oracle that Habakkuk has been called to proclaim to Judah, we have been called as his people to proclaim repentance, but also judgment. For the church and for the believer, Christ has endured that judgment. But for those who are not, those who refuse Christ, judgment and exile from God won't be for seventy years in Babylon. It will be eternal. So Habakkuk's first complaint helps us to learn how to complain but also where to arrive when God does answer. So God may respond to our complaints by telling us to look at the nations. Here come the Chaldean hordes over the hills. But we still should always humble ourselves and repent and rest in his sovereignty, but also in the hope that we have in the resurrection of Christ. So as we come to the table and as we go forth from this place today, Boldly take your concerns and questions and complaints to God, but do it in humility and place all of your hope in Christ Jesus and rest in the sovereignty of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.